Holy Week. Um, it technically starts tonight, the Pro Bowl, and moves toward next Sunday, my favorite holiday. Um, but uh, glad you could spend this morning with me in preparation for those, for those uh, celebrations. Um, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to start through the book of 1 Thessalonians on Sunday mornings. First um, Thessalonians is an interesting book. It's a pretty short book. Paul wrote it to the church there in Thessalonica, but it has a lot of really important content. Paul started the church in Thessalonica when he was on his second missionary journey. Remember, Paul took one missionary journey where he and Barnabas um, went and planted some churches and then when he wanted to take off again, well, on the first missionary journey, John Mark, uh, the nephew of Barnabas, had gone with him, and, and he had flaked, and Barnabas wanted him to go on the second journey, and Paul said, no way, and so they split up, and on the second missionary journey, Paul and Silas went in order to, again, go out and, and do missions work. And you remember Paul and Silas, you probably remember that duo most for what happened in Philippi, as they were there in prison in Philippi, um, praising God and miraculously were delivered, and the church in Philippi started. Now, if you know your geography at all, we're talking about events that happened primarily in Greece, in the area of Greece today. Um, a lot of the churches, earlier churches, are over there in what, what, we, what today is Turkey, which is generally called Asia Minor, uh, when we're referring to biblical days. But they had gone over to the Grecian, um, uh, the, the part of Greece there, and, and Philippi is in the north of Greece on the east side. And things, that, that church started, and it was going well, but, but um, you know, they, the people got after him, the Jews got after him, and so Paul left Philippi and, and went on to um, head down south, and he came to um, Thessalonica. And Thessalonica is a, is a port on the east side of, of the Grecian peninsula. It was a very important city, one of the capital cities in Macedonia. But, um, and Thessalonica was named after the half-sister of Alexander the Great. It was an important city, mostly Gentiles, but there were some influential Jews who were there. And Paul had come to Thessalonica. You can read all about it in Acts chapter 17. But he came there and he taught for three consecutive Sabbaths, and there was quite a revival, primarily among Gentiles who had been hanging out at the synagogue. Paul was teaching in the synagogue, and there were Gentiles who wanted to know God, and so they were attending synagogue. But when they heard the message of the gospel, they were like, wow, this is God, plus it doesn't you know, discriminate against us because we're Gentiles. And so a lot of them responded. And then he also had a real, um, according to Acts 17, a women's ministry there, a lot of women who responded to the gospel. And so the church there started... Paul was perhaps there a little longer than three weeks, but we know that he was there for three weeks. Then he left and headed south under pressure, and it's likely that Timothy and Silas stayed there in Thessalonica for a bit longer. But Paul went down into Berea next, which is south, 
Things went well there. Things got started, but some of the Jews who were against him came from Thessalonica down to Berea and raised more problems. And so Paul left Berea and went further south and went to Athens. And of course, he had a, he gave a great message there that didn't have a great response. And then he went inland to Corinth, and it was from Corinth where Paul was writing this letter to Thessalonica. Timothy and Silas had been up there in Thessalonica and now had come down to Corinth, and they told Paul how things were going in Thessalonica. And so he was writing to straighten them out on a few things, teach them a few things, but also primarily just to tell them how proud he was of them and how exemplary they were, how solid their witness was. So this is his letter to Thessalonica. I hope you didn't, I didn't lose you there with the history. You can read Acts 17, and you'll kind of see all that build up. I see a few confused looks. Sorry. Um, but anyway, Paul's in Corinth writing to Thessalonica. And here in the first chapter, really in the first two chapters, what he's doing is almost introductory. But what he's doing is saying, you guys really got it right. You're really doing well. And it's refreshing to hear that, you know, he was writing from Corinth, a church that just had tons of problems. And so he was probably kind of thinking and longing for, boy, back in Thessalonica, those were a good three weeks. That was a great time. And that church was really on fire. And a lot of people had sent him reports and told him, man, things are going great in Thessalonica. So he just wanted to let them know. Chapter two, he reminds them of what he was like when he delivered the message to them. And then the second half of the chapter, how they responded. But here in chapter one, the basic theme of this chapter is your church is a great example your church is doing what church ought to do. And so we can read it and go, well, that's a nice thought that Paul had toward Thessalonica, but there's a deeper message for us because we're supposed to be church just like they were. And I think it's wise and important for us to look at what Paul called attention to as saying, here is how you were exemplary, and then to be challenged ourselves to say, is that what people can say about us? Is that how we do church? Is, is that what our lives look like? So um, let's dive into this thing and see what the Lord has for us. He starts out, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Now, Silvanus is just the formal name for Silas, so same guy, um, just his, probably what his mother called him. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty good thing to be said about you, that you're the church, the, the called-out group, the people who have joined together, but you are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A typical greeting, one we could easily look over, but Paul always thought it was important to remind him, it's grace. It's about grace. If there's one thing that as soon as you get a few people together for religious purposes, grace is almost always lost. And you can say you're starting on grace. Some, I know some churches that are called Grace Church, and, and there's almost no grace that you even detect there. It's, Paul just harped on this constantly. It's about grace. It's what God has done for you. This is free. This isn't about you making yourself good enough. But he says grace and peace. Everyone wants peace. The only way to get peace is to experience grace. And if you experience God's grace and you begin to show his grace, 
suddenly you'll find yourself at peace a lot more. And so he just gives this greeting that Paul loved, and I think it's an important one. And now he says in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you all. Dr. McGee always points out that Paul was a southerner. (laughs) Making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. And let's stop there for a minute. He says, man, I'm thanking God for you and what stands out to me about you guys, about your church. It, it's, it's a way that I would describe your church when I think of it. He says, first of all, your work of faith. Now, the word there for work is the word ergon in the Greek. It's, it's the word that we would use for work in terms of what you do when you go to work. It's kind of like what you specialize in, what your life is about. And the word for faith, pistis, is a word that, that literally means persuasion, being that someone's persuaded of something. But it, it's really using faith in the, in the generic term of the faith, like Christianity, relationship with Christ, all that. And, and what he's saying is, you know, of course, you guys had to work jobs. In fact, we see in Acts 17 that Paul was working as a tent maker as he was on this journey. You, you have to do certain things in order to provide for yourself and your family. But he said, it's like when you guys became Christians, all of a sudden you said, this is my work. This is what I do. The faith, that's who I am. That's my, that's my life now. And, and I think if you knew someone who was in the church at Thessalonica, you might go, yeah, they're a carpenter, but really that's their side job. Their real work is about the faith. Really what they're passionate about and what their life is about and what they desire to leave as, as really, here's what I did, here's the product of my work, is that relationship with God and that connection to him and the relationship with other believers. And what a great thing to be said about someone. And I'm thankful. I know people who, they work jobs, but I know that what they really care about is the faith, is a relationship with God. And that job is simply um, almost like a hobby to them. It, it, it's, it's bad when, when your relationship with God is just kind of hobby. It's just like, yeah, you know, we go if there's nothing on and, you know, nobody has asked us to do anything else on Sunday. And, you know, but with the Thessalonians, he goes, Man, right away I saw you guys dived into this thing and said, here is my major. Here's what matters to me. This is really my life's work. This is what I'm called to do. And again, they weren't professional ministers. I mean, frankly, a lot of people who are employed in ministry are the furthest thing from people who are really known for a work of faith. Um, I won't go into it. But <laughs> so... Otherwise, I'll never finish what I want to say. But So the first sign is, this is what they were about. They did it as if it's their profession. They were into the faith. And then he says, their labor of love. The word here for labor, the, the most literal translation of it was a, came from a root word that meant to cut. And it, it came to refer to laboring on something, but the idea was, 
working until the point where it stung, where it hurt, where it cut, where there was pain there. And so he's saying, not only did you adapt the faith as being, this is my way of life, but you were willing to take some of the pain that would come along with that. Most things in life, if they don't hurt, you're not doing them right. And, and if they're really easy, they're not doing you much good. And so he goes, you guys not only adapted this as something that was your life's work to, to be involved with, with other believers and, and with the faith, but he said, you were willing to do it to a point where it was uncomfortable for you, whereby it affected your nervous system, whereby it cut you, where you picked up scars from it, but it was a labor of love. And that's, I mean, a lot of people are willing to suffer. And then they'll make you suffer as they tell you how much they're suffering. <laughs> you know, I could get up and, and I don't know if I ever do this, I hope I don't, but I hear other pastors doing it enough whereby they're just com- telling you how horrible their life is because of you. Oh, you guys put me through so much and this is difficult and I'm in agony. No, yeah, I am. But... <laughs> But it's because of love, and it is well, every bit of pain that's involved in ministry is so worth it. And unless you do it for the right reasons, it's not. Unless you do it out of love, unless you're doing it out of a compassion for God and his people, the pain is is wasted. It's thrown away. You know how Paul pointed out over in 1 Corinthians 13, I don't care what you do. Speak in tongues of men and of angels. Give your body to be burned. Give everything that you have away. Pour your life out. And if you do it without love, it means nothing. And in terms of spiritual life, if people can't see God's love flowing through us, we don't have a testimony. To the extent that people look at the church and they see us as a bunch of bitter, angry people, and they see us a bunch of judgmental people. They see us as people who, yeah, we love each other, but we sure hate you guys. And if you ever leave our church, we'll hate you too. We used to hate you, now you came. Hey, welcome, you're one of us until you leave. And then I'm going to pound you from the pulpit. <laughs> no, but it, it, it's love that ought to be the characterization of the church. It's what people should notice the most about us. Man, those people care about me. Those people are really motivated by love. If you don't get that, nothing else matters. I feel bad for people who make all sorts of sacrifices to serve God, and people don't see God's love. Because all it is is a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. You're just making yourself a martyr, basically. But Paul said, man, when I saw you guys, I saw that you were willing to hurt, but it was a labor of love. Nobody wondered whether you cared about them or not. Nobody wondered whether you really loved God or not. It was obvious. And then, as he says also, a patience of hope. That word there for patience means to put up with something gladly, to be pleasant even when you're going through a tough time. Patience doesn't just mean going through a tough time for a long time, because if you just lay on the ground and have somebody beat on you, If they want to keep doing it, they can keep punishing you. But it's being willing to subject yourself to difficulty patiently, pleasantly. And then, as he says, the patience of hope. That word hope there means optimism. 
It's a word that means an expectation of, of good things. And so here he says, you guys in Thessalonica, people knew and I saw right away, man, you guys were people who were looking forward to the future. You actually expected that God was going to show up and that he was going to deliver us. This should be an emblem of healthy Christians in a healthy church. And I'm really chagrined when I see sometimes that Christianity gets the image offered by some of people who are really paranoid and and constantly dreading the future. Like, oh, bad things are going to happen. I'm thinking the church is just about gone. You know, I, I think today we're probably the only church left that's really faithful. And I'm looking around, and some of you aren't convincing me that you're really a part of us. And so I'm thinking, and, and ultimately they act like, oh, bleak days are coming. America's about to fold. The church is about to disappear. And poor little God. He can't deal with this. God is probably just frantic about this economy, going, oh, no, look at what, you know, and God's like blaming George Bush, and he's just going, you know, oh, well, what am I supposed to do? And, and it, no way. Christians ought to be people who go, I know who God is, so I'm looking forward to seeing what he does. I'm looking forward to seeing the good that's going to come in the future. And believe me, if you do that, you stick out like a sore thumb as we're supposed to. But we ought to be people who have a reason to hope, a reason to believe that good things are happening. And we don't stick our head in the sand and ignore the bad things that are happening. It's just that we worship a God who is so great that we can be realists and still be optimists. And so he's saying, that's what I saw in you guys. I saw that your life was the faith. I saw that you were willing to work in pain, motivated by love. And I saw that you guys were looking forward to seeing what God was going to do. And he says, it's in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. That's why we can have hope. And then he goes on in verse 4, and he says, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. He said, right from the beginning, I could tell you were chosen by God. I didn't have to look and go, I don't know, man. I don't know if anybody's here who really gets it. But he said, I could just tell as soon as I opened my mouth, just as I taught and as I saw what God was doing in your lives, I saw that Thessalonian church and I go, wow, God really had a purpose for that group. Good things are happening. And you can just tell that they're chosen. And then he goes on to say, for our gospel didn't come to you in word only, it wasn't just talk, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sakes. He said, I, I knew that you were chosen, and I also had every reason to know that you guys were assured too. Now, this whole idea of assurance is sometimes controversial because people are like, well, how can you know that you're a Christian? How can you be assured? And well, the only reason that's a problem is if you don't obviously have the Holy Spirit working in your life. He said, I didn't have to look at you guys and wonder whether you were saved or not. And I didn't look at you people in Thessalonica and have people constantly coming to me and going, what's the bare minimum I have to do in order to go to heaven? You know, how, how much do I really need to get into this? He goes, no, you guys knew. 
you saw the Spirit working in your lives. You, I, I, I saw what God did, and everybody saw it. And so I didn't have to wonder. I didn't have to doubt. I wasn't like, oh, I don't know. You know, some days I feel saved, and some days I'm not. No way, man. You guys got into it. This became your life. And I was assured of the power of the Holy Spirit working in your lives. And he says, you knew what kind of men we were among you for your sakes. He said, you guys saw what we were. What you see is what you get. You, you, you saw our genuineness, and, and that's just what you followed, and that's how it happened. And he's going to develop that more in chapter 2, so I won't go into that anymore. But in verse 6, he says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. That word there for affliction literally means pressure. Right away in Thessalonica, I mean, think about it. The people who responded to the gospel were people who were dabbling in Judaism. And they were like attending, and they were kind of feeling like second class, but they were interested in things of God. And now all of a sudden, they're like accepting Jesus Christ. And these radical Jews in Thessalonica, who again were so radical that they traveled to Berea to try to mess Paul up down there, you know they're going to turn on him. And the pressure was on almost immediately. But, you know, pressure for a Christian is never a bad thing. Because what pressure does is bring out what you're really made of. And he said, when you guys were squeezed, the joy of the Holy Spirit came out. Now, many of us will, do, will go to great measures to avoid pressure. Because we just don't like being squeezed. But partly it's because we're afraid of what's going to come squirting out when someone squeezes us. And he goes, you guys, you were under pressure, and what came out is joy. You know, anyone can have joy when everything is going your way. If everything is just exactly the way you want it to be, and everyone's going along with whatever you want, and, and it's like life is wonderful, the sun is shining, and you know, you're winning the lottery and all, you know, of course you're happy. But put some pressure on and you find out what's really inside. You find out what you're made of. And sometimes God allows us to be under pressure to go through affliction just to reveal to us that there are some deficiencies that we need to work on in terms of what's inside of us. I'm, I'm embarrassed sometimes to see what comes out of me when I'm under pressure. But Paul said, you guys were under pressure all the time, right from the beginning. And what came oozing out was this joy. What a, what a cool thing to say about a church. And he said, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia, who believe those are two of the Greek provinces up there in the northern part of Greece. And he said, for from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. It's getting everywhere. It's worked down here to Corinth. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. <laughs> he said, you know, people are hearing about you guys, and you don't have to issue a press release, and we don't need to put ads in the paper, and we don't need to push people to get the word out. He goes, it's just getting out there. And, and the message is, look at man, these people are suffering and they're rejoicing. And people are wanting to have that for themselves. 
They're like, wow, these people are young in the faith and they're willing to lay their lives on the line. Someone has said, if you haven't found something that's worth dying for, then you really haven't found anything that's worth living for either. And these guys had found that which is worth laying their life on the line for. And as a result, the life that was coming forth from them was so contagious that you could not bottle up the word of what God was doing. And a lot of times for the church, when we feel like we need to do something to get the word out there, we're, we're trying to utilize the flesh to compensate for what the Spirit just isn't doing because, frankly, we just don't want to do church the way you're supposed to do it. We don't want to be that personally invested. So it's easier to find artificial means and to dangle carrots out there to get people to come. Paul goes, we didn't have to do that. Man, the word was spreading. And if something real is happening, if something good is happening, you don't have to strive to get the word out. You can't bottle it up. And he said, that was the testimony of your church there in Thessalonica. That was what was happening. And so he said, "Um, I don't need to say anything, for they themselves, people who heard, declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. They go, man, that was amazing. Paul came, preached, short time, boom, boom what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He said they heard about it, what happened, and and he describes their their whole, he summarizes their witness with really these two infinitives in verse 9, to serve, and in verse 10, to wait. And, and those kind of summarize everything about this, to serve and to wait. Sometimes you can serve, but you can't wait. Sometimes you get frustrated because God's timing is different than ours. But they were serving, and they were also waiting. They had an expectation Now, it's interesting that he described ultimately what they were doing as serving. The word there is is, uh, douleo, from which the the noun form is doulos. It's something that they were, it's in the present tense, it's something that they were continually doing. He said, you guys were serving a living, true God. You left idols. So therefore, you stopped serving dead gods, You stopped serving phony gods, and you began to serve a true and living God. And what a contrast that was to everyone when they saw the difference. It's a challenge to us. What kind of God are we serving? Do we look an awful lot like idolatry? Are are, are we the type of people who are kind of hoping to imitate what the world has to offer? I mean, Paul wasn't their idol. God was. Paul came and declared the gospel, and he was gone in a few weeks. And what makes the church the church is not what we are doing right now. The church is not a guy on a stage and a bunch of people listening. What the church is is everyone realizing, I get to be a part of being a servant of Jesus Christ. 
And being a servant means doing what he tells you to do, using the gifts that God has given you, being willing to give, being willing to put time in, being willing to chip in and be a part of it and realize that that membership in the body of Christ is really about finding a place whereby you can be a servant. And that's what church is about. If church becomes about just the pastor, then going to church is no different than going to the movies. You know, and, and so we might as well invest in some technology and put me in IMAX 3D and like Avatar, and when you come in the door, the ushers will hand you your little glasses and you go, oh, I love church. It's such a trip. Look at all those. But that's not it. It's about going, how can I serve? What does God want me to do? And, and this isn't church. This is a part of it. This is an aspect of it. But ultimately, what church is about is service, is being involved in the lives of others, is doing what God has called us to do. And he said, there was such a contrast, because where one time all you cared about was material things, and what you were worshiping was idolatrous, and you didn't just exchange one idol for another. You didn't exchange one set of greed for another. What you did is you said, I am no longer going to serve what's dead and phony. I am going to immerse my life into something that's living and true. And that's not a something, that's a someone. It's God. It's Jesus Christ himself. And so he said, you guys were serving, and everybody knows you're serving. They see what you're doing. You don't have to brag about it. You don't have to you know, be on the front page of the paper. Look how we're serving. People saw you serving because you were serving them. You were serving in front of them. You were serving in the community despite the danger that was involved in that. But secondly, you were also waiting, and this is important. And by the way, the book of 1 Thessalonians, each chapter ends with something about the return of Christ. It, there's more eschatology in the books of First and Second, Second Thessalonians than there is in any other book in the New Testament other than the book of Revelation itself. And there's a whole lot of things in First and Second Thessalonians that aren't even in the book of Revelation. And, and, so, and it's interesting, usually we tend to think of eschatology or the study of future things as being for people who are really advanced in the faith. Paul's teaching these guys eschatology when he only had three weeks to teach them anything, and obviously this caught their attention and their fascination. And so he talks about it throughout this book, and we'll get into that more as we get into it. But he said, one thing about you guys, while you're serving, you're also waiting. You're waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's no question about it. The early church was passionately motivated by what we call the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That means the expectation that he could return at any time. Now, a lot of people have a problem with the imminent return of Christ because it does affect your eschatology, and people have a lot of different perspectives on how the return of Christ works and when it happens and how we are to interpret and understand these things. And, you know, I refuse, I'll, I'll be honest with you and share with you always the way that I interpret it and the way I see it, but I don't fight with people about the return of Christ. 
You can believe anything you want about it. And there are good Christians who believe all sorts of different perspectives. But a lot of people have difficulty with this imminent return because if his return is in fact imminent, it does eliminate some pretty popular um, understandings of eschatology. It presents a serious problem for people who believe that, that Jesus is going to return or the rapture is going to take place at the end of the tribulation. Because you can figure out, man, things have been really bad for about seven years, and three and a half years ago there was the abomination of desolation. Guess what? It's hard to say eminence. Mid-trib, same thing. It's really hard to believe in an imminent return of Christ if you think he's already returned, and all of this is just symbolism. But again, I, I don't want to, you know, really, I've debated it until I'm blue in the face with people, and you can believe what you want, it's okay. But one thing that everyone who believes all of those things will admit to if they read the Bible and take it seriously, and most of them do, is that the early church expected Jesus to come back at any time. When Jesus ascended in the clouds and the angel said, same Jesus, he's coming back in the same way, it's really obvious that the Christians expected him to return soon. And it's just soon is a relative term. That's the problem. So even people who don't believe the way I believe eschatologically admit that the church believed that. They just think the church was wrong. And so they'll say, yeah, well, they thought he could come back at any time, but you know, they just didn't know. It was confusing to them. It's why Peter said, you guys think Jesus is slacking off because he hasn't returned. He said, no, he's patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But these people were expecting Jesus. And when you expect him, it does affect your life. It, it allows you to see the, the difficulties of this life as being not that big of a deal in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. Because what is it that you're worrying about today that you would even worry about if you knew Jesus was coming tonight? And, and, and I absolutely believe he could come back before third service. And, and I want to live my life expecting him to be here at any time. Now again, sometimes you get yourself hyped up and you can't maintain that level of excitement over a period of time. I, for a lot of us, you know, back who came to the Lord back in the 70s, and, you know, we heard so much about Jesus' return. And if you went to Calvary Chapel on the, on the wall by the Shell gas station, Jesus is coming soon in huge letters. And you're like, yeah, it could be any time, could be any time. And you expected it. But then the paint started fading, and there's something kind of weird and ironic about having to repaint a sign that says Jesus is coming soon. And, you know, eventually I just painted over it and gave it up. And for a lot of people, that's what happened in their heart. They're like, oh, man, I thought he'd for sure. I thought I had it figured out. A generation from 1948, that takes you to 88, minus seven years for tribulation, 81, he's got to be here, and he didn't show up. And we're like, oh, shoot, I guess we were wrong. He can still come back at any moment. The church in Thessalonica had that expectation, and we should too. Because when he promises that he's going to do something, he's going to do it. And the only reason why he is delayed is because if he had come in 1981, how many of you have accepted Christ since 1981? Raise your hand. Okay, you're the reason. <laughs> Thanks a lot. But that's just him. He's so loving and so patient. But Paul said these guys were in Thessalonica were famous for waiting for him, for looking forward to his return. And then as he describes it, 
He comes and delivers us from the wrath to come. They expected his return to stop them from having to go through a time of wrath. And that's one of the reasons why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Um, again, you can, you can believe the Bible and take God seriously and come up with a different view, but you'll have to ignore this verse to do it or, or twist it around to my understanding. These, these guys knew this could happen at any time, and there's a worse time coming afterwards. No matter how much agony we are in now, it's nothing compared to what God's going to protect us from. And again, there are people who would say, well, you know, protect you from the wrath. He protects you right through it. Yeah, um, and ultimately, if we end up going through the tribulation and you get killed for your faith, then poof, you, you miss, you're out of the wrath. In fact, if we do go through the tribulation, I'm just telling you, I'm not, it's not my job or even desire to survive the tribulation. I'm, I have enough ammo that I'm going down shooting, and they are not going to get close enough to cut off my head. I promise you that. But these are guys who said, we can live the life that we live because he is coming back, and he's going to rescue us. And we're going to have a lot more to, we see that he says about this as we go through this book of First Thessalonians. But again, let's take a look at what Paul says. This is an example of what a church ought to be and what a Christian ought to be. And he says, your life is the faith. That's your work. And he said, you're willing to labor, and it's always for the right reasons, and it's always in the right way, full of love. And you've got that optimism, that patience of hope. You're always looking forward to seeing what God's going to do. And people hear about you, and they know you're a Christian. They don't have to wonder. You've got that assurance that you, you've made your calling and election sure. And you live your life in such a way that you, your reason for living is to serve God, is to be a part of what he is doing. And your eyes are constantly on the horizon. The reason you're so optimistic is that you know that if it gets so bad, the best thing ever is going to happen, and Jesus is going to come back, and that's what you look forward to. And, and this is what their church was known for. And I pray that for us, God would work in our lives in such a way that People would see us when we're under pressure and see joy coming out, see hope coming out, see dedicated service, that, that this is what we would be known for among, among people who know us and that even people who don't know us would hear good things about, yeah, that's a church that I hear they, they're really loving and they're really doing it right and they really are serving in a lot of different ways and, and they're looking forward to Jesus coming back. That's my prayer for us, is that we would be that same kind of example. And it didn't take Thessalonica long to build up that reputation. And so if each of us begin to change in our own lives, it doesn't take long before people know about it, because it's rare to live this kind of life. And when we do it, people notice. And that's what God's calling us to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for sharing with us through Paul about Thessalonica, and I pray that you would help us as a church to aspire to have that kind of example out of how we do life. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. You know, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, and some of this has been kind of weird and confusing to you, 
Um, the bottom line is this. If you're not serving God, you're serving something dead. You're living for something that will never satisfy you. But God sent his son to die for you, and he loves you, and he'll let you start life over living with a living God. And so if that's you and you want to do that, um, he'd love to hear from you. And there'll be people down here in the front who, they'll pray for people for any reason, but boy, especially if you, if you need to enter into a relationship with God, don't leave here without knowing where you stand with him. And come on down as we sing this last song and, and just pray and see what God can do as he turns your life around and, and makes you known for something more than whatever you're known for now. May God help all of us just to live pure lives of faith and hope and love. God bless.